So good to be with you, church, today, wherever you're joining in from. We're continuing our vision series today on how we can be a church, how we can be a people that loves God, that loves the church, that loves the city, and that loves the nations. Today we're going to be talking about how we can be a church that loves our city. I want us to think about and consider one powerful way that we can love our city, and that is by showing our city the beauty of racial harmony and ethnic unity that can be known and experienced in God's church. And next week, we'll be talking about how we can love our city by showing the sanctity of every human life. In a city and in a world filled with divided and warring factions of all kinds, in a city and in a world where peace, peace among each other, seem utterly impossible, we want to show our city that there is a kingdom called the kingdom of God, where the dividing walls of hostility that alienated us from one another has been torn down by the cross of Jesus. We want to show our city that there's a people called the people of God that finds our unity, that finds our oneness, not in our ethnicity or in the shade of our skin color, but in the one common, undeniable reality that has united us and that has changed everything for us, and that is that we have a king named Jesus that has died for us on the cross. We're going to be jumping around a bit in the book of Ephesians today, and as we look at the text together, let's ask three questions regarding racial and ethnic unity and harmony. First, how important is it to God? How important is racial harmony to God? Second, how can we pursue it? What are the things we can do to pursue it? And third, why do we need it? We'll spend most of our time on the first question because it's foundational, and then we'll quickly move through the second two. First question, how important is racial harmony to God. If I were to ask you, how important is racial and ethnic unity in the body of Christ, how would you answer that question? What if I were to ask you, is it essential and is it of paramount value for people of different races and ethnicities in the church, in our church, to have unity? And if you were asked, is pursuing racial harmony in the church one of the distinguishing marks of those who claim to be followers of Jesus, what would you say to that? As we look to God's Word, I hope to show you that yes, having racial harmony within the body of Christ is not just a good thing that would be nice if it could happen, but an indispensable thing that it is one of the most defining and distinguishing marks that ought to be present and active within God's church. There's a place in the Gospel of John where we see Jesus on the night that he was to be betrayed. And what do we see him doing? We see him praying. He prayed to his Father for his disciples, and he prayed for us, his church. And there's so many things that Jesus could have prayed in that mighty, weighty moment. But he chose to pray something closest to his heart. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, his disciples, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, the church. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the very last thing that your Savior prayed for you before his death, before he was arrested before he was arrested, beaten, tortured, and headed to the cross to be crucified. This was what he prayed. It was a prayer for unity in his church. That we as God's church, though we may differ, and we do, though we may differ in gender, in age, and personalities, though we may differ in occupation and political ideas and income brackets, though we may differ in cultures, languages, skin color, and ethnicities. And Jesus, knowing this and loving this, that he would be drawing all sorts of men, all sorts of peoples to himself, prayed for our unity. He prayed for it three times in four verses. It's sobering to hear someone's dying request. At the end of life, there's an earnestness and a sobriety to their final words. When you're about to die, you don't waste those words. You don't waste those final breaths with glib and unimportant things. You speak things that are closest to your heart. The thing that Jesus prayed nearing the end of his life, the thing that was closest to his heart, he said, Father, I want my people, all of them, each of them, no matter their differences, to become perfectly one as you and I are one. This was so important to Jesus that he was willing to go to the cross and die to make it possible. Our unity was so important to Jesus that he was willing to die for it. Why do I say that? Because often when we think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, what do we think about? We think about our salvation. The gospel is the good news that through the cross, our relationship with God has been restored, it's been reconciled, and that the dividing wall of hostility, that dividing curtain that existed in the temple separating us from God because of our sins has been torn down from top to bottom, that where there was enmity between us and God, there is now peace because of the cross of Jesus for all those that trust in him. That at the cross, Jesus accomplished for us our salvation. He considered you being saved and you being reconciled to God to be so precious that he was willing to die to accomplish it. This work of the cross we all know about. We all treasure, we all glory in, we all worship God for. But as Paul is describing this great work of the cross in Ephesians chapter 2, he doesn't stop there. 
He keeps going. The work of the cross didn't stop there. The gospel wasn't done there. Paul is going to show us that Jesus not only treasured our being reconciled and having peace with God so much that he was willing to die for it, but he treasured our being reconciled and having peace with one another so much that he was willing to die for it. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's Jesus. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A situation that Paul is addressing here is a century upon centuries old divide and hostility that existed between ethnic Jews and all the other ethnic groups called the Gentiles. Their division was complex and it ran deep. Theirs was a religious divide in which the Jews believed in one true God while the Gentiles worshipped all sorts of other gods. Theirs was a social and cultural divide that involved practices like circumcision and dietary regulations. One believed that the other was so filthy and unclean in what they ate and how they lived that they called them dogs. There was a bloodline divide. Sons of Jacob versus sons of Esau. Families of Isaac versus the families of Ishmael, the children of Abraham, versus the children of any other father. So the division, the hatred, the wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles were just as big, if not bigger, than any divide that we face today in America between blacks and whites, or brown or white, or Asians and African Americans. But these Jews and Gentiles that had such a division, that had such a hostility between them, they were now coming to know Jesus. They were becoming Christians. For centuries they knew and they were ingrained in the relationship dynamic between Jews and Gentiles. They knew how the Jews and Gentiles thing worked. Hostility and hatred. But the question at hand was, how would the Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles thing work? Would they treat each other the same way as before, like nothing had changed, like nothing had happened? The Jews were over here, and the Gentiles were over there, with the massive dividing wall of hostility that stood for centuries. But then the cross of Jesus broke into their lives. Does life go on as usual? Does the cross change nothing? No, Paul is saying the cross changes everything. You're a white person over here, and you're a black person over there, and in between is a dividing wall, a centuries-old dividing wall of hostility built with the bricks of slavery and dehumanization. But then, 
But then the cross of Jesus breaks into your life. You come to know someone named Jesus. Does the cross change anything? Paul is saying, yes, it changes everything. Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, if you've truly experienced the cross of Jesus, you'll never be able to look at another person the same again. Paul is saying if you've really come to experience the cross, you begin to realize that the most important thing about that person is not their racial or ethnic makeup. You still see it. The cross doesn't mute out our ethnicities. It's still critically important, as we'll see later. But you begin to realize that the most important thing about them is that Jesus died for them, just like he died for you. I realize that I'm a Christian first, and then somewhere down the line, Korean and Asian. You begin to realize that you're a Christian first, and then somewhere down the line, black, white, or Latino. The cross levels us. The wall of hostility that we put up against each other, the cross levels it and puts us on equal footing, on the same foundation called the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, we realize that no matter Jew or Gentile, no matter black or white, Latino or Asian, we were all and equally such sinners that Jesus had to die for us. There's no race or ethnicity that's so good in and of itself that didn't need to be saved by Jesus. Well, that destroys our pride. But also at the cross, we realize that no matter black or white, Latino or Asian, that we were all and equally so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. There's no race or ethnicities that's so bad that they're not loved by Jesus that makes us feel our infinite worth. The cross of Jesus levels us. I've heard many Christians ask, why do we have to talk about race? Why can't we just preach the gospel? We are preaching the gospel, don't you see? The gospel is not only the good news that at the cost of his life, Jesus reconciled us to God, but at the cost of his life, he reconciled us to one another. Both were accomplished at the cross. And so if we are a people that loves and treasures are being reconciled to God, but disregards are being reconciled to one another. We're ultimately disregarding the cross. We're only holding up half a gospel. Jesus died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and bitterness and indifference out of our hearts towards all other persons whom Jesus died for. No matter what race, no matter what ethnicity. Next, if racial harmony and ethnic unity within the body of Christ is disimportant, disimportant to God, disimportant to Jesus, that he was willing to die for it, well, how can we pursue it? What are some things that we can do to accomplish it? Well, good news. Let's go to Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 4 this time. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
and the bond of peace. What are we called to do? Verse 3, what does it say? Does it say, be eager to create the unity of the Spirit? No. It says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In a culture where everyone is scrambling to trying to figure out how to create unity with each other, this scripture says nothing of creating unity. So what does that mean? It means that the unity in the body of Christ that's so essential, it's so critical, the unity that God so desires for his people, it's so beautiful, it's so important, and it's so, so many things oppose it that we can never create it. Only Jesus could create it and establish it by the work of the cross. But just as Jesus accomplished salvation for us, right? Something that we can never accomplish. Jesus accomplished it on the cross for us. But then he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and fight against and put to death in our lives everything that would rob us of living out that reality of our salvation. Jesus also accomplished unity for us at the cross. But now he's calling us to maintain that unity, work out that unity, live in the reality of that reality, and fight against and put to death anything in the body of Christ that threatens that unity. In other words, Jesus created it. Jesus created it. Only Jesus could create it. But then we're called to live in a manner worthy of it. We're called to maintain it. It's the neglecting of this maintaining work that has led to the shameful history of the American church and all the ways that the American church has failed and made compromises and ultimately sinned against God and particularly our black brothers and sisters created in his image by continuing to allow and uphold personal prejudice in our hearts and structural racism in America at a great cost to himself. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done so that you and I could have unity inside the body of Christ. But now, but now we're called to maintain it. But how? How do we maintain it? Look at verse 2 again. With all humility, it says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. With humility, we maintain the unity of the Spirit, it says. With gentleness, with patience, with forbearance and love, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. And these four things aren't just four random things that Paul is pulling out of thin air. He got this list of four from looking at Jesus. These are the four exact things through which Jesus created and accomplished the unity that we have. The humility of Jesus going to the cross. The gentleness of Jesus in not dealing with our sins the way it deserved to be dealt with. His patience with us and being slow to anger. Jesus' forbearance and love, the fact that he endured the cross for us. Now I've heard people say that kindness and gentleness isn't enough that we're not going to solve racism by just committing to be nice to one another, that structural racism is too real, it runs too deep, and that we need to fight for justice by changing laws and demanding changes in systems. And I 100% agree. We need to do more than kindness. 
but we can't do less than kindness either. First of all, we need to do more than kindness. We have to understand that governing authorities and laws are gifts of God as His common grace. As we near remembering and celebrating all that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has done to make civil rights in this country better reflect God's heart for His image bearers, we're reminded of what He said, that though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, there's limitations to the law. The law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. That's grace. That's common grace. And I think that's pretty important. Anytime there are laws and structures and systems in place that bring disadvantage and harm to a certain people in the body of Christ, no matter how, my, how much in minority they may be, all of the body of Christ must rise up to change those laws and structures and systems. We need to do more than kindness, but we can't do less than kindness either. Why? Because we can't forget that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. We need to fight against personal prejudice and structural racism wherever they may exist. But if it's not rooted and birthed from a heart of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, we might achieve unity, but it'll never be the unity of the Spirit. Did you know that at a moment in history, humanity achieved such unity and such oneness to the point that God said, Behold, they are one people, and nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. What if we could somehow be able to get together as a people and do away with prejudice and get rid of racism and dissolve borders and all the ethnicities come together as one people and we say, let us make a name for ourselves and build for ourselves one country that will rise up to the heavens for one human race, what would that be like? Would that be an amazing thing? No more prejudice, no more racism, no more wars, just human greatness on display. Wouldn't that be an amazing feat? Well, church, we've been there and done that. It only took us about 1,700 years after humanity's creation to accomplish it. It only took us the first 11 chapters of the Bible to accomplish it. Genesis 11, it was called the Tower of Babel, and we all know what happened to it. What the Tower of Babel is showing us is that unity and oneness in and of itself is not the goal for God's people. We may be able to produce a unity, but without humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, it won't be the unity of the Spirit. We may be able to produce a oneness and become so able that nothing that we purpose to do will be impossible for us, but without the cross, it's a oneness that will only produce sinful pride and so bring down divine judgment. We may be able to build for ourselves a kingdom reaching to the heavens, but if Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of it, it won't be the kingdom of heaven, and I don't want to be there. We're called to maintain the unity of Jesus 
that Jesus accomplished, the way that he accomplished it, the means matter. He accomplished it through humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Think about the humility of Jesus. If anybody could have argued and argued rightly, you know, there's something about my personhood, my makeup, my ontology that makes me superior to you. If anybody could have said, me and my kind, the race that I run with called the Holy Trinity, we're stronger than you, faster than you, smarter than you, richer than you, we're just better than you. If anybody argued that, could have argued that it was Jesus. But what did he do instead? He got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. He laid down his rights as the king of the universe and died on the cross and said, I came not to be served, but to serve. You know what a white supremacist doesn't have a shred of? Humility. You know what someone who despises immigrants doesn't have? Humility. You know what a Christian nationalist is completely void of? Humility. Next is gentleness. There's only one time in all the scriptures that Jesus describes his own heart, what it's like, and he uses two words to describe his heart. Two words, gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. When's the last time you saw gentleness in the public square concerning race? In today's cancel culture, have you ever seen that canceling then lead to repentance and heart change? What would it take for us as a people to repent and actually have our hearts changed of any and all racism? What could be the spark that leads to the repenting of our apathy towards injustice and the prejudice that we feel towards one another? What can lead our city and our nation to true repentance and a heart change? The same thing that leads us to repentance over and over and over again. The kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus that leads us to repentance over and over again. Gentleness isn't an action, church. Jesus confronted injustice at every bend, but he did it every time with the heart that is gentle and lowly and with the heart that is patient. Next is patience. As we pursue racial diversity and harmony within our church, we need to be patient with one another. We don't know everybody's story and prejudice and racism. It has deep roots. Even the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter, he was so convinced and he was so ingrained in his belief that Jews were superior that it took the Apostle Paul gently rebuking him. And it took literally a vision from God for him to realize that the Gentiles were now his brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be patient with each other. Patience is believing that God can change people. Patience is looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ and believing that God can change them. The racist of today may be the greatest reconciler of tomorrow. And the last one is forbearance. 
bearing with each other in love, it says. It seems similar to patience, but the main difference is this. When you're patient with someone, you're placing your hopes in the fact that God may change them in this lifetime. But to forbear someone means that you're choosing to love them even though they may never change in this lifetime. Why is forbearance so important? Because there may be some within our church that will always have racist tendencies and thoughts. That sin may always be a struggle for them. Just like you and I may always have a particular sin in our lives that we fight against, but that in this lifetime we may never truly be able to put to death. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do when our patience run out? Just cancel them? No, we're called to forbear them. When patience runs out, forbearance has to kick in. We're called to forbear them in love just as Jesus forbears us in his love. Each time we keep running back to that same old sin. Instead of a cancel culture, let's build a forbearance culture in our church. Why? Because Jesus never gives up on his people. The good work that he started, he promises to bring into completion. Forbearance is not only looking at what, what our brother and sister in Christ look like now, but what they will look like one day in glory. One day in glory. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing in love. These are the things through which Jesus created the unity that we have, and so we are commanded to follow in his footsteps in maintaining that unity. And lastly, why do we need racial harmony in the church? Why do we need it? We saw that it's important. We saw how we can pursue it. But why do we need it? Let's look at the last part of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In verse 21, Paul tells us that when people of every race and ethnicity within God's church, when we come together, that we're in fact being joined together and that we're growing into what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 tells us a holy temple in which God will, what? Dwell. Why do we need racial harmony and unity in the church? We need it so that God will dwell with us. So that when our city looks at our church, they'll say, surely God is in that place. So that when our city looks at our church, they say, surely God must have something to do with those people at the Austin Stone. How else? How else can such different people who would have otherwise never gotten along come together and love one another? Surely God is in that place. Surely God dwells there. 
The promise of Ephesians 2 is that when God's people from all different races and ethnicities come together in loving one another and being one and being united, that God will dwell with us. So does that mean that God will otherwise not dwell with us? No, I'm saying to the extent that the Austin Stone pursues and moves toward more and more racial diversity and harmony and unity, we'll get more of God. We'll get more of God. Let me give you an illustration. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, describes a great friendship. Describes a great friendship that he shared with J.R.R. Tolkien, whom he called Ronald, and another friend named Charles. He wrote that after Charles died, he thought that it would mean that he would get Ronald all to himself, and so get more of Ronald. But in reality, he found that not to be the case. He explains, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. There was something that only Charles could bring out about Ronald. And so after Charles died, there was less of Ronald to be enjoyed. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying is that there are things about you only certain persons can bring out. There are things about your friend that you can't bring out, but some other friend can. And so if this is the case with the finite person, how much truer is it with an infinite God? C.S. Lewis is showing us, I I'm not large enough to fully bring out the whole of God. I can't see all of Him by myself. I need you. I need you to show me facets of Him that I can't bring out. And so this is the goal of racial harmony and ethnic unity within God's church. More of God. More of God. Me looking at our Pastor Jimmy, who leads worship at our West Congregation and saying there's something precious about your African-American culture. Or us looking at our Pastor Dre at our South congregation and saying there's something precious about your Jamaican-American culture that enables us to see God in a way that we couldn't on our own. And then Pastor Dre looking at his South congregation that's predominantly white and Hispanic and saying there's something precious about your culture and ethnic heritage that enables him to see and enjoy more of God. And hopefully many of you looking at me and saying there's something valuable about your Korean culture that enables us to see a facet of God that we wouldn't have been able to see on our own. And therefore... When it comes to God's church, when it comes to worship, truly, the more, the merrier. The more ethnically diverse, the better. That's why the greatest worship we'll ever experience will be in heaven, because there, 
There will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation because at that time, in that place, we'll finally be able to see and bring out all the facets of God. We'll finally be able to see him as he truly is because we'll all be together as God's people. When God's people come together, we get more of God, not less, always. When we move toward one another, no matter our differences, we get more of God. When we consider each other's different cultures and ethnicities as precious and as valuable, we'll be able to see different facets of God we couldn't see before through all the beautiful filters of our ethnicities and cultures, we'll get more of God. And so we'll be able to show our city this God that dwells with us. Let's pray together. Father, we want more of you. We need more of you. By myself, I am not large enough to bring the fullness of God into activity. My ethnicity, my culture alone cannot bring out your fullness. Father, we thank you for this church, this bride called the body of Christ, the church of God, the kingdom of heaven. We thank you that it's not made up of one people, one color, one culture. We thank you that it's made up of the beauty of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We thank you that there's a day coming when we will all be together and we'll see you and we'll say, that's what you look like. Father, we long to be in that place at that time with all your people finally being able to see you as you truly are. But Lord, we don't want to just wait. We want to get a glimpse now. We want to get a glimpse now of what is to come. So Lord, will you open our eyes to the preciousness of the cross? Will you give us the heart of Jesus that saw our reconciliation, our restoration, our unity with one another to be so precious that he was willing to die for it? Will you help us to consider it to be so precious that we would be willing to lay down our lives for it? Because that's how bad we want to see you. That's how bad we want to see you as you truly are. That's how bad we want our city, this nation, this world to see the beauty of who you are. That you can bring together a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. People that we used to hate. People that we used to want nothing to do with. But now, because of the cross of Jesus, they're our brothers. They're our sisters. What a family. What a family of God we're called into. Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you would help us to maintain this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. 
until that day. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.